0: Take your Bibles turn to Galatians chapter four, Galatians chapter four. Merry Christmas. It's good to see everyone here. I'm thankful that we are celebrating Christmas together, but even more that we are celebrating the Lord's day together. What I want to discuss this morning is the reality that Christmas is about more than just the birth of Christ. It actually points to something far greater. We have a lot of traditions that we celebrate at Christmas. I don't know what your family traditions are. Some of you uh, have Christmas pajamas and Christmas candles and Christmas trees and Christmas presents and all kinds of things that you enjoy doing. I know we like to open our Christmas stockings on Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day. We do the presents and uh, just enjoy being together with family. I'm thankful that you included church today in that as we celebrate Christ and his birth. But why do we celebrate Christmas? That's an interesting question to ask in our world today. Ask your coworker, why is it that we celebrate? What is the point of what we are doing? There's a lot of ideas about why we celebrate Christmas. And perhaps we could summarize it down if we asked the people around us into the idea of good feelings and uh, service to others. But Christmas is about so much more because the reality is Christmas would be meaningless without the cross. A few weeks ago, we talked about God coming in a cradle. But today we want to walk from the cradle to the cross. We're reminded in the beginning how it all started, why Christmas even had to happen because of Genesis 3 and the fact that all of us have sinned. That because Adam sinned and pledged all mankind into sinfulness, and into wickedness, God promised that one day a seed would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible works forward Towards that, we see as you move on, it's Genesis 17 and 19 of God calling Abraham and promising that from him the world would be blessed. And you move into Isaiah 6 and 9 where this promise that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, that he would uh, become the king of the world. And you see in Malachi chapter 3, the final promise of this messenger that would come to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And then there was silence. 400 years of nothing. It is like wondering, when would this happen? As we refer to Christ's second coming, maybe today, today would be great. That's how they would refer to his first coming. Maybe today, maybe today's the day when the Messiah would come. But this brings us to Galatians chapter 4. Let's read together the first seven verses. He's beginning in chapter 3, speaking about a, a tutor over a slave. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he says, I mean, an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date, until the date set by his father. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, excuse me, and if a son, then an heir through God. We discover here in Galatians chapter four, that Christmas is about something so much greater than stockings and candy canes and songs and presents. Christmas is about the cross. Christmas is about Good Friday and Easter. And I want to look this morning briefly about three reasons why we can confidently say and why today we should celebrate the cross on Christmas. Three reasons why Christmas is actually about the cross. The first we see in verses 1 through 3 where we learn that we were slaves to sin and the law. Paul begins the chapter with a picture of what some translations call a tutor. Here in the ESV it's called, excuse me, a guardian or a manager. And he continues this picture from the previous chapter. This time he looks at it a little bit different. In, in the previous chapter he described the law as our guardian or our manager or our tutor. Now, he's not speaking like a today's kind of tutor. I don't know about your schools. I know the school my my boys go to. You could have uh, your child stay after class and the teacher would tutor you in whatever subject it is you're struggling in. But that's not what it's referring to here. In in fact, we really have nothing like it in today's society. Perhaps the closest thing we have to this idea of guardian manager or tutor would be a nanny. Um, I, I know you are like us. We don't have a nanny. We don't live in that stratosphere. But some have nannies, right? And we understand what those are. And in the Roman and Greek culture, a particular slave would be assigned to the child. And that slave's sole job was to raise the child. But not just to raise the child, but to prepare them to take over the family. And so they would feed them, and they would clothe them, and they would take them to school. Sometimes they would teach them themselves. And while those duties were important, the most important duty was preparing that child to become the head of the house, to take over the family, to be the heir. You can imagine the work that that would involve with most children. It involved keeping them out of trouble. I'm sure that was a chore. It involved teaching them discernment and wisdom. It involved showing the child their faults and weaknesses so that they could grow. So when the time came, they would be responsible, wise leaders. These managers were preparing the way for adulthood. Here in chapter 4, the picture is of this child who is the heir of the house. He owns everything. And yet... While he's a child, he's under the authority of this manager. This slave is his master, his authority, until the date set by the father when he becomes the authority. And so until then, he must obey the slave. And in this sense, he's no better than the slave. Now, the law does the same thing. The law of Moses, the Old Testament, demonstrates that we need help. It demonstrates that we have some serious faults and weaknesses that we need to deal with. It demonstrates just how depraved we were. It further demonstrates that no action on our part can achieve perfection or salvation. It shows us our faults and our weaknesses. The picture that we see is that we were that child. We were slaves to sin and the law. We were bound to serve sin. We were bound to serve the law. We were destined to hell. When I read this text, I cannot help but think of Ephesians chapter 2. Where we are told what we are like. How we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In times past, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We were dead in our sin. Many through the ages have called this the utter depravity of man. Man is dead in their trespasses and sins. Man is born spiritually dead, unable to, To do anything good. Man is not desired to come to God. We saw that when we looked at Romans 3. He is utterly corrupt and depraved. One commentator Schaefer, mentions the Bible gives overwhelming testimony to the utter inability and spiritual death of the unsaved. They are shut up to the one message that Christ is their savior and they cannot accept him. The word declares, unless illumined to that end by the Holy Spirit. And so being dead, they walk after the course of this world. They live after Satan himself. They're under the dominion and reign of Satan. which means they're God's enemy. That's the problem. Because of Genesis 3, because we sin, we become God's enemy. We're left... In sin. This is why Christmas is important. So much of many would say Christmas is about goodwill. It's about merry thoughts. Just having a good day where we're actually happy. Maybe unless you're spending time with your family. Right? We think of the Christmas carols. We think of the songs and the merriment that we sing. You want to know what the world thinks Christmas is about? Watch the Christmas carol, right? Scrooge is this mean old man who's happy and alone, or unhappy and alone. He's a miser and he's visited by the Christmas spirits. And what do they tell him the spirit of Christmas is about? It's about the spirit of love for others and giving to others. The problem is that doesn't work. We don't like others. We like us. We don't serve others. We serve us. We serve sin. We serve Satan. And so it doesn't work. Before salvation, man has no other desire than to serve himself. And the characterization of this life was that he sought to fulfill the desires of his flesh and mind. Man has no other goal than self-glorification. Bound by anger towards those that don't gratify and feed my desires. The total depravity of man paints a helpless and morbid picture of life. Woman said man is in a helpless state. His mind is blind to the things of God. His emotions are corrupt and set upon sin and his will is fallen and powerless. That means that he has no power within himself to come to God. Another says, all are dead in trespasses and sins. They were world conformists. They were energized by Satan. They obeyed the rule of sin, of their sin nature. And all they deserved was the wrath of God. You see, man is dead. And when something's dead, it's worthless. About the only thing you can do with something that's dead is if it's edible, eat it. Other than that, it becomes stinky. And that's the befitting description of the unsaved man. Of the position we were born into. And he says that we were under the law. The law was meant to show us that. Because we like to think we're pretty good. We like to think we've got it together. Because we like to compare ourselves to everyone else. But the law holds up God's standard of perfection and reveals how we cannot even come close to it. Those who thought they did, we think in the New Testament Gospels of the Pharisees who thought they did. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells them things like, you think you're obeying the law. But you're not. You say you honor your father and mother, but you're finding ways not to. You say you haven't murdered, but you hate your brother without a cause. You say you've not committed adultery, but whoever looks on a woman to lust after has committed adultery. And he holds up the law to help us see we're a mess. We don't have it together. And we're under this law. We're in bondage until the date set By the father. And that's what we celebrate today. Is that date. Paul continues on in Galatians. Stating that we're under bondage. To the elementary things. Says we're under bondage. In verse number three. Enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. It's, It's like the ABC's. The pictures of a kindergartner. Sitting in class. Learning the alphabet, laboring over how to write them and the sounds that they make and the order of the alphabet and trying to figure it out. Why is it so important though? I mean, it's such a simple concept, but until you understand that concept, you cannot understand anything else. You can't read, you can't write, you can't do arithmetic if you don't understand that. And just like that, we are in bondage to that simple concept. Of sin. The actions that we participated in were childish in comparison to the riches that Christ seeks to bestow on us through the cross. It's really a terrible picture that is painted here. Life doesn't work. As we look at the world around us, we begin to understand what this looks like. We see the way that conflict happens and the hatred that is in our world and the strife and the envy and the discord that is there. And then one day a year, they try to set it all aside and act like they're happy and excited. But it doesn't work because by tomorrow, it's back to normal. It's why there's songs like, I wish we could have Christmas all year round. As a believer, we like to say, you can. Why? Because the second reason Christmas is about a cross is because at the perfect time, Christ came to redeem us. Note verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of, As sons, he begins with that word, but it was bad. Life doesn't work, but there's something different. What is it when the fullness of time had come? God sent forth his son. That idea of fullness of time is the idea that time that is filled up. In other words, God had prepared the entire world for this Particular time in history. It was the perfect time for Jesus to come. I think there's three reasons why it was the perfect time. One is that the world was spiritually ready for the Messiah. After 400 years, Israel was longing for their king. Historians tell us. That the Roman world was in great expectation waiting for some kind of deliverer to fix their broken world when Jesus came. The old religions were dying. The old philosophies were empty and powerless to change men's lives. And so a lot of these strange new mysterious religions were invading the empire. Religious bankruptcy And spiritual hunger was everywhere. That day in Rome looked a lot like our country today. God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son. But not only was it geographically ready, it was politically ready. Alexander the Great had conquered the world. He had instituted what became known as the Roman peace through Caesar Augustus. This new Caesar had come in, he had solidified his, his empire, he had peace. There wasn't a lot of conflict, so it was politically ready. It was geographically ready. Because Alexander the Great had conquered the world, he had instituted a common world language, the Greek language, to where everybody at least spoke that language. When they took over, they united the world. When the Romans took over, they reunited the world under one rule. And so they built roads to enhance commerce. And they enhanced trade routes. They built infrastructure for travel. Health came to an apex. People were living longer at the time. The world was ready for Christ. And at that perfect moment, God sent forth his son. The idea is not just that Jesus came, but that God sent him as an emissary with authority for a specific purpose. Let's talk for a moment about how he came. He tells us he sent forth his son born of a woman. Now, as you read that phrase, you might think. Thank you, Paul, for that obvious statement. How else is someone born? Born of a woman. I have heard of people born. I mean, I guess in today's world, they try to tell us people are born of men and things like that. But we understand that's not how it works. Born of a woman. But this means something so much deeper. There's two key aspects to this idea of being born of a woman. The first is the important part that Jesus actually became a human being. Now I want us to contemplate for just a moment how amazing that statement actually is. Think back to the beginning. The perfect trinity created all things. How? By speaking. Man, they formed out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. They created, God created everything. And it was messed up. Creation quickly decided they wanted to become God. We decided we wanted to be like God and messed it all up. And instead of starting over, the eternal plan of God was that the second person of the Trinity would actually become his creation. Would take on the human world body. I don't know about you, but I don't like the human body a whole lot. It breaks. It gets sick. This morning I woke up and I couldn't breathe through my nose. But this is dumb. It gets cold. It hurts. Jesus took that on. He went from perfection to a human body. He actually became a human. Well, this is important in a moment as we get to it. The second thing that this says that he's born of a woman is not just that he was born of a woman. A woman had him. He's not arguing against modern culture today where we might say, well, maybe it was a man. I don't know what he was born of. Maybe it was a nothing. We don't know. That's not what he's saying. It's also referring to the virgin birth of Christ that this was a miraculous birth, not just because God took on flesh, but because it was out of the normal biological structure. When Mary came to Joseph and said, Joseph, I am pregnant. And Joseph is a mess hearing this. And of course, I'm sure asked the question, who, Mary? Who is the dad? And Mary said, God. And Joseph said, Mary, I know how these things work. Who's the dad? And Mary said, God. And so Joseph decides, this is not going to work. I'm going to have to divorce her. And as Larry read the text this morning, he's thinking about how to put her away quietly to protect her reputation. And God himself had to come and say, Joseph. She's telling the truth. This is a unique birth. The seed of the woman is here. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. That phrase, born of a woman, is so rich because it points back to Genesis 3.15, where that seed is crushing sin. He's born of a woman, but he's also born under the law. This is not just saying that he was born into the Roman world where there were laws. It's saying just as we are slaves to sin and the law demonstrates we can't keep it perfectly. Jesus Christ entered that world. And while we could not perfectly keep the law, one could. Jesus was perfect. And while the law reveals our depravity, it is that mirror like the morning that we look in and go, that's ugly. The mirror of the law pointed to Christ and said, perfect. It revealed his glory and righteousness. So he came of a woman. He came under the law. But why did he come at all? He tells us he came to redeem us. God sent him forth with a specific task. And that task was to redeem us. It means to set us free by paying a price. We think back again to Genesis 3 and the price for sin. God told Eve and God told Adam, If you eat of that tree, if you rebel against me, you will surely die. And it wasn't just referring to physical death. It was referring to separation from God for all eternity. The wrath of God poured out on man. And Jesus Christ came to pay that price. And so although he was perfect, he died. He was murdered on the cross by his own creation. In order to take our sin on himself, we think of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became our sin so that we might be made his righteousness. See, Christmas is about redemption. That baby in the barn In the trough was the hope for all mankind. Christmas without the cross would mean nothing. It would just be an odd story of some poor family who couldn't go anywhere and so had their baby in a barn. And we would see that movie and we might think it might make a good Hallmark movie, but it would still not be a very good story. But with the cross, it becomes the greatest Story ever. Why? Because the third reason why Christmas is about the cross is because through his redemption, we have been made sons of God. He tells us he did this to redeem those who were under the law so that in order that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, an heir through Christ. He says, you have been adopted and made a son of God. Now, we fought a war to get rid of royalty, although we tend often to be infatuated with royalty. So picture with me this today. King Charles is having a mess with his boys right now. And so he shows up today here and he says, my boys, Harry, William, I mean, they're a mess. You've seen the news. They're they're not going to follow me. I need someone different. I pick you. What would that mean for your life? Now, maybe as a good American, you'd say, yeah, I don't need no royalty. You go back to England where you came from. But probably not, because you would say, wait a minute. So, like, all those castles in England, they're mine now? Those crown jewels, like, they're mine? That'd be pretty amazing. How much more the king of kings has adopted you as their child? The king of Kings has adopted you as his son, as his daughter. Jesus died to do that for you. To adopt you as their, as his child. How can you be confident that this has happened though? How can you be confident that this is going to work out and he's not going to realize how bad you actually are and what a mess you actually are and it's going to change his mind. He tells us, Because he sent forth his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He sealed us, we're told, with the Holy Spirit. And in us, he helps us to actually cry, Daddy, to God. I can't help as I read this text to think of Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you've put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so the Spirit, every day, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, confirms in you, you're God's child. You're His child. And as you confess your sin, He's faithful and just, forgiven, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But not only does He seal us with His Spirit... He makes us heirs. He gives us an inheritance. Now, what does it mean if you are an heir? It means that whatever that person has is yours. It's yours. You think about growing up as you would go home. You would say to your friends, I am going to go home to my house. Now, here's the question. Was it really your house? Did you pay the bills? Did you purchase it as your name on the deed? No. But was it right for you to say that is my house? Absolutely. Why? Because you're the heir. You're the child. What is theirs is yours. Your family. What this means for us is that God has given to us everything we need. We live in anxiety. We see inflation happen. We see our pocketbooks tighten and we begin to worry. We see things going on with family. We see things going on with health and we begin to worry. And Christ tells us, you see how I clothe the birds of the air. You see how I clothe the flowers of the field. Don't you think I'll take care of you as my child? Have faith. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So as you celebrate Christmas and you celebrate the birth of the king, you're reminded that through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, you're redeemed. A son has a father. A slave has a master, but a son has a father. A slave serves out of fear, but a son serves out of love. A slave is poor and has nothing, but a son is everything. A slave has no future. A son has a future. Because you have been removed from the slavery of sin and made a child of God, you have a purpose to life. And now Christmas can be year-round. It's why I said We celebrate today that it's Christmas, but even more, we celebrate today that it's the Lord's Day. We celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You see, Christmas is about the cross. It's about the fact that we were sinners. We were enslaved to the law. But at the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And we're reminded in in Romans chapter 10 that we receive this redemption by making Christ our Lord, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we become His children. So this Christmas, we ask: Have you done that? Are you a child of God, or are you a slave to sin? That's our first "so what" today. Are you a child of God or are you a slave to sin? Where do you sit? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Or are you just celebrating this baby at Christmas as some weird story? Along with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Or do you believe that he is the Lord of all things? If you are a child of God, do you live like a child of God? Or like a slave of sin? You see, if you're the child of God, it means you don't have to sin. You don't have to. You can gain victory over sin as you surrender to Christ, as you confess it, as you practice the spiritual disciplines and you grow and walk in the Spirit. You don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It reminds us that a purpose of the church is to help us overcome sin, that we gather together to encourage one another, not just to talk about the weather or football or the deer you shot, but about your spiritual life and your walk with God. That were to provoke one another to love and to good works. But today as we do celebrate Christmas. As you leave the auditorium today. And go back to your Christmas traditions. Your holiday lunches. Perhaps presents still to be opened. Family to spend time with. As you celebrate. Celebrate the cross. Not just the baby in the trough. But the king on the cross who redeemed you and established his kingdom and one day is coming back. Wouldn't today be great? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. Lord, as we celebrate baby Jesus today, Lord, I pray that we would not forget that cross on which he died to redeem us. To make us your children so that we might have life abundantly. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not placed their faith and trust in you, we ask that the Spirit would draw them to you. That he'd not let them rest until they've surrendered their life to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.